Welcome to One Haas, a podcast devoted to bringing the Haas community closer together through your stories. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and my mission is to help open our eyes to the network we never knew we had. Today, I'm joined by Evan Wright of the Full-Time MBA 2020 program. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sean. So Evan, we met about three weeks back at a dinner for the three MBA association. Yes, MBAAs, <laughs> the student governments right. for the different classes. And the whole goal was to create more partnership among those different groups. Right. And even specifically so that there could be more coordination, right? So the idea of like having all of the VPs of DEI sit together and brain meld on the different things they're working on, different things they want to pursue in the future, right. different strategies. It was a really helpful event, I think, for me in that sense. Yeah. It was also very stressful. I'm very close with Elita, who was supposed to be giving a presentation at the beginning. Right. And I think there was some kind of mishap. So I think they rescheduled it and didn't actually check with her. So yeah. she couldn't make it. And Evan ended up giving the presentation, which we'll talk about later. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But let's take a step back in time and hear a little bit about your background. Yes. Uh, where you're from, yes. where you grew up, what yeah. you did before Haas. Absolutely. So I am from Washington, D.C., Southeast Washington, D.C. I often... I'm very particular about that distinction Why because that? I think there's something very particular about saying I'm from Southeast DC, right? That says a mm. lot about the community that I was from. Right. And that's very different from being from Arlington, Virginia. Got like it. those are not the same types of places. Got it. I think I'm very adamant about making that distinction. So yeah, I was born and raised in Southeast Washington, DC back when it was Chocolate City. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that's something that the older I get, the more I travel, the more I'm really appreciative of. Right. Being in a city that has such a rich history in general, but specifically for African-Americans, for Black people. Right. You know, being in a city where in my church, I saw Black doctors, lawyers, judges, people working from paycheck to paycheck, people who were experiencing homelessness. I saw the wide, beautiful variety of Blackness. So it's very weird for me now to be here in Berkeley, where quite honestly, the only Black people I see are students and homeless people. And then that's not an exaggeration. I feel like it it can seem that way. But uh, that's really, in Berkeley at least, that's really my experience. Right. So yeah, I'm really appreciative of being from DC. I think about it as being a very influential to the person I am and what I find to be valuable and what I find to be important. Mm-hmm. Growing up in a church, for instance, where we had a female associate pastor and a black male openly gay pastor live with his partner. Wow. We were a United Church of Christ, known to be a very progressive version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. My pastor growing up, Reverend A. Knight and Stanley, his father-in-law was uh, Andrew Young, who was really big in the civil rights movement. So I grew up in church, having people from SNCC, from SDLC, people who had been on the forefront of that kind of racial justice work, social justice work. That's right. kind of something I just grew up around. Mm. And maybe did have a history of connecting with Jewish populations and Muslim populations in the community, which is something that we often did right. during MLK celebrations, for instance. So yeah, just that entire experience, that kind of base for me mm-hmm. was really important and definitely shaped who I am as a person now and how I approach that type of work. So that's kind of like where I'm coming from. (laughs) I can definitely tell from first impressions of you (laughs) the other day. Uh, So you went to Brown. Yes. What did you study there? Biomedical engineering. I really enjoyed my time at Brown. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed being an engineer at Brown where I could not have freshman requirements and take a myriad of other classes like 20th century Black feminist thought with a very famous professor, Professor Trisha Rose, who wrote, I think, one of the first academic books on hip hop called right. Black Noise, right? Like we right. had, those are the kind of people that I had at Brown and Brown had a very particular history around social justice work, around racial justice work that I also felt drawn to. Right. And in choosing schools, I was choosing between Harvard, Princeton, and Brown. And right. 
things that I noticed, like at Harvard, for instance, where there were a lot of black students, but there was not a lot of socioeconomic diversity within those black students. Mm. I was raised maybe low income or lower middle class. I don't know. It, it changes, right? right? That's the nature of financial security or insecurity. But just going to you know Harvard, for instance, and seeing all of the black people having a very different background than me in terms yeah. of financial backgrounds. Yeah. And then going to Brown, where I saw a bunch of people that I knew from high school. Backtrack a little bit. <laughs> I went to public schools up until seventh grade mm. in DC public schools. And the turning point for me was literally my guidance counselor sending me and my mother down, telling us verbatim, Evan will not reach his full potential if he stays in DC public schools. Mm. He needs to go to a private school. Right. Then we applied to a bunch of private schools looking for a scholarship because my mother didn't have any money to send me one. Yeah. Got into Sidwell French, which is a very well-known Quaker private school in DC. It's where Obama's girls go. One of them still goes there. It's where Chelsea Clinton went, as you can imagine. Not an environment that I was fully prepared to jump into. Right. But the shocks that lower-income students can have going into a predominantly white educational environment. A lot of people I knew experienced that in college. I experienced that in ninth grade. So mm. I had four years to figure it out. Yeah. And figure out how I felt about that environment and find my space in that environment before I actually did it in an Ivy League institution. That's amazing. Yeah. And that also speaks to your intellectual curiosity and ability to get in, right? So Yeah, sure, sure. (laughs) We can't can't undersell that. (laughs) Sure. And I think this is something that's really important to me as well, right? Oftentimes when we talk about people, especially URMs, who are in these educational environments, like, oh, you did a really good job. You're really smart. I feel very strongly that that while being true is not the whole story. Because there are plenty of other smart black and brown children that went to the public schools I went to Mm -hmm. who didn't have the type of familial support that I had, who didn't have a mother that knew these systems and how to navigate them. Right. Who, yeah, we're just dealing with different things, right? Right. And and just the the way that our education system is set up, there's just not enough scholarship opportunity for all the kids that are smart enough to go. So for me, yes, I'm smart and I'm capable. And I also had a mother that really pushed me. And I also was in a situation where I, saw things and, and knew things were possible for me that or other kids coming from my experience didn't have right. or didn't know. Or didn't um, have that counselor that gave that piece of advice. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I can go back in my life and think about so many points in time where if it were just left up to me, I'd be in a different situation. Right. There are mentors. There are people that reached back. There were older students. There were teachers. All these people in my life that really, had they not intervened in different ways, I would not be here. I would not that's be sick. here talking to you right now. And that's not because I'm smart. Right. <laughs> so I think that's just an important distinction I want to make. But yes, I felt very smart in public school that didn't necessarily transfer when ninth grade when I didn't realize I didn't know how to write a paper or didn't know English grammar, right? right? Like the simple things that other students had had, I did not have. And being in an environment where I, I, I still remember very clearly to this day, being in Sidwell Friends the very first year in ninth grade, seeing kids go to class, hearing the bell ring and drop their backpack in front of their locker in the hallway and just leave it unattended and go to class. Mm. My first thought was, oh, your stuff's going to get stolen. Right. Didn't even second guess it, right? That was my immediate first thought. Went to class, came back out and saw all of these bags unbothered. Mm. And that's kind of a, I think, a, it was a shock, right? It's a shock in many ways. But first and foremost, knowing that the rules that I had to grow up with, you know, just having street smarts, right? Like these were environments that these kids had, felt safe enough to do those things. Yeah. There was no metal detector walking into Sidwell Friends. So yeah, I mean, it was a quite a shock. But that shock in high school allowed me to not have it be as much of a shock in college. Mm. And also put me in a situation where I knew people from my high school that were at Brown, right? right? <laughs> so yeah. it just completely changes the environment, changes the expectations, wow. changes what's possible for you, what you think is possible. Right. But I think Sidwell in, in many ways set me up to be at Brown mm-hmm. 
Brown in many ways set me up to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I'm very thankful for my time at Citadel, even though it wasn't easy, even though I hated it. Honestly, my first year and a half, it was really hard being there. Yeah. I was one of three black males in my class, in my ninth grade class. Mm -hmm. um, I was the only black male they had brought in outside of the school. So these other two black men had been there since kindergarten and were very well assimilated, right. so to speak. And I was not. Did you have to travel far to go to the school? Yes, across town. Wow. About like an hour. So going from Southeast DC, which is predominantly black and low income, right. going to Northwest DC, which is predominantly <laughs> higher income and white. Right. Right. So that was like a shock. I mean, that was like, it just a, I could just watch the community around me change every day. How'd you get to school? Did you have to take a bus or your, your mom? Yeah. So, um, this gets a little complicated. Sorry, I'm just curious. No, yeah, yeah, no. It, and this are... is, it's a good question. Yes, I. my mother was a really, she was able to take me mm -hmm. in ninth grade and even be embarrassing, right? Like my mother did this really embarrassing thing where she would always have me stand in front of the sign every year at the beginning of the year to like, Evan in ninth grade, Evan in 10th grade, Evan in 11th grade. Evan, like uh... it was so embarrassing, right? I wanted to disappear, you know what I mean? And yeah. she would be like, Telling me to smile. She's like this thick Southern accent. She's like, smile, I haven't smiled. You know, and I'm just like, please take the picture so I can go inside. Right. And I have to do this anymore. Um, but she took me to school, right? And that was like, that was amazing because I didn't have to wake up super early, yeah. right? And I could sleep in the car. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, there, there's all these ways that because she was very involved, my experience was easier. Uh, for various reasons, my mother was on my life which is a really complicated situation I want to go into right now. Yep. But uh, suffice to say that things are really difficult. She's trying to put food on the table and, you know, she made a mistake. Right. I have a lot of thoughts about the criminal justice system and what it does and what it doesn't do. One of the things it does do is it ruins families. One of the things it doesn't do is rehabilitate people, help right. them figure out what they did or how they can kind of make different decisions moving forward. My mother's not a bad person. I think of her as like the reason that I'm here. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, like, and not, you know, in a very real sense. The way it works in DC is that you would be in a neighborhood school, right? My neighborhood school was not good. So in fourth grade, I was getting into fights, having trouble. And my mother literally sat in the Museum Magnet School, which was a middle school in Capitol Hill there connected to the Smithsonian, provide a lot more opportunities and exposure for students. My mother, my mother sat in the principal's office at Watkins Elementary School, like every day. Wow. And got me into a fourth grade class in the middle of the year, which right. is like kind of unheard of. But because of that, again, I was able to go to yep. a high school and like all of these things are possible now because my mother like did all of these things. Like I just went out of her way to constantly prepare me and give me opportunities that I would have never had otherwise. Right. All that to say that not having my mother, my mother was a single parent for my formative years and I have a stepfather who I'm very close to, but before that, we were not very close, right? Like right. my mother going away for like nine months while I was in my sophomore year of school made us very close. Right. But it was extremely hard being at a, like imagine what it is like to be at Sidwell. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like where all of these kids are coming from these places with a lot more financial security. Right. And all these other things. And I'm coming in from Southeast DC, low income. My mom's not around. You know what I mean? Like it just, yeah. I, I tried to think about it a lot because it was like a tough time. But, um, you know, I got through it and... I will always tell people like my mother is the reason why I'm the person I am. She's because amazing. Of all that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you did after Brown. Yeah. So I majored in biomedical engineering, loved it. Also realized I didn't want to be in a lab for the rest of my life <laughs> and wanted to travel. So as soon as I left Brown, I actually became a Princeton Asia fellow. Mm -hmm. It's a fellowship through Princeton that where they essentially send recent graduates throughout Asia and Southeast Asia to work as teachers, work in nonprofits. 
but essentially giving, <laughs> in all honesty, I think it had a much more, uh, we could say, imperialist bend right. in its founding. Okay. But I think the way it exists now is much more in terms of cross-cultural understanding, right. which I think is something I'm all about. And I love that experience. I went to Singapore for a year and a half, taught science, uh-huh. biology, chemistry, and physics at National Junior College, which is the first junior college in Singapore, which is where Lee Kuan Yew went, which is where a lot of the senior leadership in Singapore went to go to school. See. It was an amazing experience for me being in Singapore. It's where I started competing in Muay Thai and kickboxing. I mean, there's so many things that I had opportunity to do because right. I was just out there on my own having this experience. After that, I came to DC for a little while and I was looking for jobs and also still competing in kickboxing. Won my first national tournament, then went to Chicago for two and a half years to work at my master car, which is an industrial supply company in their management training program. And it's essentially a rotational program where we learn all about all the different aspects of their business and then work as an internal consultant doing efficiency projects. Mm-hmm. And then you get promoted and you are now managing a portion of the operation and also doing those projects. See, okay. Really, really great experience. And I think although it was very hard for me to be there, again, wouldn't have the type of knowledge about business and about operations and about a very high-functioning company, how that operates on the inside. I mean, those are like lessons I take with me now. After I leave in Chicago... In that last six months of being in Chicago, I was a a fellow in New Leaders Council, which is a progressive leadership, political entrepreneurship fellowship that takes their different chapters all around the country. I was in the Chicago chapter as a 2015 fellow, but essentially the idea is you bring in a group of young people to be progressive leaders moving forward. So you teach them how to fundraise, teach them about diversity and inclusion. You teach them about like a whole myriad of different things. And those are skill sets and a network that I still use to this day. I see. As a matter of fact, I'm currently on the National Diversity Committee for NLC. So we do all the diversity training for those chapters and we spearhead a lot of the diversity inclusion initiatives in NLC as an organization. But that network was super important to me. You said the NLC? New Leaders Council. Got yes, it. NLC. A lot of former Obama people run it now. And yeah. So after finishing in Chicago, I went to Japan for a year and a half to mm-hmm. finish up a project that I had been working on every summer since I graduated, which is why it gets a little confusing. <laughs> so I graduate. <laughs> Sounds like you're juggling <laughs> six things at once. I know. I know. It, so I graduate, go to Japan for a summer to test out the educational model that would eventually become UWC ISAC Japan, which is the first independent boarding school in Japan. Wow. I came in as a camp counselor right. for 20 students, mostly from international schools in Japan and English-speaking schools in Japan. And as a camp counselor, realized that there's a gap. There's a need for diversity, inclusion, training, and facilitation right. for the kids. I essentially get the green light from the leadership to do this workshop for the kids, and it becomes a mainstay for the program moving forward. Right. Every summer, I do this. And as the camp grows, it turns into an actual school in Japan. I see. So essentially, the summer camp every year is when we're testing the educational model of design thinking right. of leadership as a practice, right? which is something um, a mentor of mine came up with. And now there's a full-fledged school with kids that are doing designing diversity inclusion workshops that I taught them how to do. Are these kids high school kids? Yes. Okay. From all over the world. right? I so I think- So it's like an international school? Yes. Okay. Yes. The first international boarding school in Japan. And it is now a part of the United World College Network. It's a network of high schools around the world that are linked to the UN, but the idea is, again, cross-cultural understanding. So there's like one in Canada, there's now one in Japan. They're all over the place. Uh, are they Are they also uh, an IB school, International Baccalaureate School? Yes, they are. Okay. Yes, they are. So we were juggling Japanese next requirements, IB requirements. Right. And then as I was leaving, becoming at UWC, so they're juggling those requirements as well. I see. 
And then shortly after that, what did you do? I was, uh, <laughs> I came back to uh, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. which is where my girlfriend was living. She still lives there as a consultant. And she's I, here uh, in the room, by the way. Yes, that's why I keep referring to her. It's <laughs> confusing for people who are not here. Um, and I worked on the Hillary Clinton campaign mm. uh, as a field organizer, very, very low level, doing all of the like, the door uh-huh. knocking, the wall, you know, yeah, you know, um, <laughs> and had a devastating loss. And right. I and I really can't, you know, I, it's hard to describe. I think a lot of people who work in campaigns and you lose, like it's devastating, right? Of course, right. you you put all your eggs in this basket. You have maybe these hopes and these dreams of like pursuing this career. Right. And then once your candidate loses, it's all over. Right. I think it's something very different to think about what the election was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And just the raw, naked racism, xenophobia, yeah. misogyny, Islamophobia. I mean, like I could go down the list. Right. And to have that person not win the popular vote, but be elected. Right. It was devastating in a real tangible way that I think other elections had not been for right. me. My girlfriend is Muslim. Her family is Muslim and they're West African immigrants. And, you know, I worry about them. I right. worry about people that I care about. You know, I worry about communities that I care about, right? Like, this is not, it wasn't like a, it wasn't intangible to me. Right. That loss, right? The next day in Philadelphia, people were spray painting swastika signs and like, elementary school white kids were like yelling at black and brown children like go back where you came from right like, this is not like a this is not just a political campaign yeah. that you lost right this is something that i think defines our country in a very important way i think a lot of people are beginning to realize that now when it happened like i remember waking up that day and just like staring at the ceiling of like just cannot believe that that happened right all of that devastation which is very unique to the 2016 election and then the devastation of not having a job anymore, like not knowing what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. And that was really tough, right? I was like unemployed for a little while. And then I started working as an independent diversity inclusion consultant. But I would have never done that if I hadn't been as uncomfortable as I was after the election, been unemployed, and then had to really think about like, what am I good at? What can I contribute to this world that is changing very drastically? Yeah. And I was also thinking about business school, right? So how can I set myself up to do that? Right. And the answer for me was working as an independent diversity inclusion contractor, essentially. I started that work a little bit in Japan, working with the U.S. Embassy in mm-hmm. Tokyo. Did a workshop for Japanese students and recent graduates, which was like an eye-opening experience for me because it was one of those experiences of like, oh, like people pay me to do this? <laughs> like literally like that. I mean, which yeah. is probably for someone like you, like it's probably like, yeah, of course. <laughs> but I mean- I, I think that all the time, like we get paid to do this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it was really one of those, those light bulb moments for me. Yeah, yeah. And I think I still- struggle with this idea of like wanting some kind of stamp of approval. Right. But in all honesty, going back to Sidwell, I've been designing and facilitating diversity inclusion workshops since ninth grade. Right. This is something that I've been having these conversations. I was involved in that community at Brown. I'm differently abled. I identify as differently abled. Mm -hmm. I have a birth injury. The doctor pulled too hard on my right, essentially the right side of my neck, Mm -hmm. stretched my radial nerve, Mm. which goes around your tricep and around your forearm. So I have limited range of motion in my right arm, limited strength in my right arm. Mm. So going to Brown, having this orientation program where we're talking about race and gender and sexual orientation and class, very powerful work. And then moving on to being a sophomore and a junior, designing a workshop focused on ability, right? Like that was something that I realized we were missing. That was a way I could bring my own unique experience to the campus. And that wasn't easy. I mean, I had tense conversations with people who literally told me straight up, people who I had been working with, in that community who I thought like we're on the same page yeah. and straight up told me like, oh, ability is not as important as race, which is, you know, wow. <laughs> a shocker, right? But for me as a black man who is also differently abled, 
I was very well aware of my ability far before I was aware of my race. My ability has shaped the person I am in ways that are just as tangible and powerful and important as my race had. Right. I just don't talk about it as much because, in all honesty, a cop probably won't shoot me because I'm differently abled. Yeah. A cop will shoot me because I'm black. So that's been just necessarily the thing that I focus on a lot. That doesn't mean that ability has not been an important thing for me. Mm-hmm. And when I think about my career as a martial artist, as a competitor, when I tried to get that fight in Singapore, the owner of the gym told me no because of my arm. Because wow. he was like, you'll get hurt. And I was like, it's a fight. Yeah. <laughs> Someone's going to get hurt, <laughs> yeah. right? Why can't I have a chance? Why can't right, I have an opportunity right. to try? So it was no small thing to going to my trainer and telling my trainer verbatim, I want you to make me good enough that I never have to hear this again, mm. to then very hard sparring with pros and high-level amateurs yeah. and getting the, the like snot kicked out of me every day until it didn't happen anymore. And then going from that to winning a national tournament. Wow. And then going from that to competing in Italy for the U.S. national team, to going to fighting a four-man WBC tournament, to fighting, to having a to having a fight in Japan where I had like a two-page cover spread and was interviewed and was on television in Japan. Yeah. Right? Like, these are things that were not imaginable. <laughs> like, I could not imagine yeah. what happened when we go back to like that start. The gym owner telling me I couldn't do it. Right. So, so yes. So, ability is very important to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the more that we can, you know, in my role here as a VP of DEI, the more that I can create intersectionality, the more that we can create intersectional conversation. What is it like to be black and queer, right. right? What kind of interfaith dialogues can we have? We don't have a Muslim student association here. We have a Jewish cultural association, I believe, JCA. Yeah, yeah. And then we have um, a Haas Christian Fellowship. We don't have a Muslim student association in the Haas campus. There's one on the main campus. Wow, but when things that. like the New Zealand attacks happen, the administration is rightfully so confused about who to go talk to. Right. Like these are low-hanging fruit. Having a prayer room on Haas's campus, like that's low-hanging fruit. Those yeah. are things that we can do. That's easy. That's easy stuff yeah. we can do to make our campus more inclusive and, right. and be thoughtful about what this community is, looks like. And that's something that is really important to me. It's part of the reason why I chose to, to do this role in the first place, be a VP of DEI. What made you want to come to business school and get an MBA? Huh. It sounded like your, your career was, was already just... All over, the, all over the place. I think it's a professional term. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also just packed full of things to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what made you want to come get an MBA? In all honesty, I had always thought about going to graduate school. I had always thought about going to law school because of my specific upbringing in, in D.C. and because of thinking of government and law as being the ways in which I make people's lives better. Yeah. We make people's lives better. Yeah. Every one of my internships up until I graduated from college, was in public policy. I right. was working on the Hill, working for a congressman, working in the Department of Justice, Department of Education, working in the Supreme Court in the clerk's office. Right. And then I think through that experience, realizing that the inefficiencies of government, the limitations in some ways, um, and just the hunger to like do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that time from graduating from Brown and, and coming to Berkeley, even... Getting admitted to Berkeley, I still thought I kind of wanted to do a JD MBA, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That's not the case anymore. I'm just doing <laughs> MBA. This is enough. Right. But I really kind of hit a ceiling, I felt. Yeah. I felt, especially after the election, I was applying for roles that I knew I could do, but I knew I was competing against other MBAs. Right. I knew that there was a wide swath of knowledge from the private sector in economics and finance, like things that I didn't have. Right. And those were all really powerful reasons why I thought that getting an MBA would be beneficial for me. Mm-hmm. Not just the springboarding into a new career, yeah. but also just taking micro. I've never taken micro. I've never taken macro. I've never taken finance or accounting. Right. Really hard to take those <laughs> here in half the time. Yeah. <laughs> but in one semester. In one. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. 
Yeah. So it, it, that's been really a struggle for me, but I'm that's why I came. Yeah. To get that kind of underlying knowledge, to be able to understand how economic systems work and function and interact with government systems. Right, and, right. Their influence. Yeah, yeah. And how to pull those different levers, right? Yeah. I want to know what levers to pull to help the people that I want to help. All of that is why I came to get an MBA. That's amazing. Let's talk about some of your roles at school. Yeah. So you said you're VP of DEI. Yes. Uh, yes. What does DEI stand for? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. I used to always say D and I, uh-huh. diversity and inclusion. I like the DEI though. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. It says more in a way that I think is very powerful, right? So diversity, having the people in the room, inclusion, making sure you're hearing from the people in the room, mm-hmm. and equity as an outcome, right? Knowing right. that every group doesn't need the same thing, right? To be in the same place. Right. When we acknowledge that we're in a, this is not a meritocracy. Some people would want to think that America is a meritocracy. That's not how it operates right. historically or in practice. And I think giving different communities what they need is important. And that's the equity piece. So coming here, I didn't necessarily expect to be doing that, but I think the really severe nature of the lack of diversity in my class in particular mm-hmm having six or seven diaspora black people in mm-hmm. my class of almost 400. Yeah. This was something that was very important to me. And I felt like being VP of DEI was a way to have a voice and have an impact right. in a very real and tangible way. And it was a way to be in the room when these decisions are getting made, yeah. to be on the Diversity Admissions Council and to to advocate for space for URMs at Days at Haas today, right? right. Like the way Days at Haas is functioning today is partly because of having people like me in the room when these things are happening, when yeah. these things are getting planned. I mean, that's like a big part of what I'm doing on campus. I think Haas in particular has a very communal, supportive environment in a way that I, my friends that go to HBS and, and uh, Wharton, for instance, don't, don't necessarily experience. Right. It's a little bit more competitive over there. Yeah. And I think we have a way of being high achieving and even a little competitive but also supportive, right? Like I can come out of an informational session and go and talk to people and say, you should also apply for this because I recognize, and I think other people here recognize that like, there's enough for all of us. You know, I never thought about that. You actually bring up a really good point. We have so much diversity in careers here. Yes. That it does feel less competitive. Um, no, I, I mean, listen, I often tell myself, you know, I can't imagine being any place else, yeah. right? I, I think I definitely picked the right school for me, for what I care about. For I totally agree. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's not to say that it's easy being here. All, no, you know what I mean? Not. Like it's no. it's not. It's the academics are hard. Yeah. And when you when you overlay the experience of being a URM here, honestly, for me, being you know coming from a low income background where I can't necessarily always depend on help from my family financially. Right. You know, these are things that like affect my experience here. Right. However, can't imagine being anyplace else. Wouldn't change it for the world. Yeah. Right. I've gotten so many, I've had so many opportunities and gotten so much exposure just being here right. that, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, being someplace else. You are, and just want to clarify, yes, being underrepresented minority. minority. Yes. Okay. Black or African-American, Latinx, Pacific Islander, and- Native American. Native American. Yes, exactly. I did want to ask you to talk a little bit about your presentation that you gave us, which was yes. amazing oh, on, on <laughs> allies. Yeah. I did that um, with Elita. Shout out to Elita, by the way. You okay. Know, she's, she's awesome. Tell us a little bit about- what allies are and, mm-hmm. and what it's about. Yeah. The term allyship is thrown around quite a bit. And uh, as is the term woke, right? This idea that you can be just perfectly aware of these situations and be an ally mm-hmm. is a pretty problematic idea. The idea of allyship is really you're putting yourself on the line with these groups of people, right? right. And it's looking for places where you have privilege that you can be an ally for those who do not, right? right? So for me as a man, as a cis male, like I need to be 
very aware of sexism in our community and misogyny in our community and, yes. and fight it as an ally, right? Like put my put myself on the line as an ally, yep. right? Not say I'm supporting women to do what they want to do. No, I'm taking responsibility, right? right? Because we do not have misogyny because women did it to other women, yeah. right? Like that's not how it works. Yeah. We don't have racism because people of color were like, hurting other people of color. Yeah. That's <laughs> not how it works. Right. People who have privilege in these situations need to be doing the work. Yeah. And only if you do the work, only if you educate yourself, can you then call yourself an ally. Mm. I never thought of this platform that way until you just said it. <laughs> um, because, I mean, having this platform, this is a privilege. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. And I think, to our discussion earlier, I think you being thoughtful about who you bring onto this podcast, making sure yeah. you, people have voices, that's an act of allyship, yeah. right? Like that is really important act of allyship. Somebody could listen to one Haas and hear if if it weren't you choosing, right? Yeah. Or somebody else who maybe were just reaching out to the people they feel most comfortable with. Yeah. We could have a very different podcast right. with a lot less representation. You know, it'd be really easy to do that. It's not easy to be an ally. It takes active work and active education. It's yeah. not something you can do passively. So um, I commend you for being very thoughtful about how you've done this it's, bringing people like me on here it's all you guys <laughs> <laughs> you know the video that you showed during the presentation allyship in action I, yes i found really impactful i yes, think that's yes, something yes. um i can link in the uh description mm-hmm. of this show can you talk a little bit just describe that a little bit yeah for people there was uh there was a, a black man that was recently shot uh in sacramento by sacramento pd and as per usual Unfortunately, when, when these things come up, the officer just got off. DA chose not to indict. And I think that was a clip from maybe a town hall right. with the community and a public action of defiance of, you know, saying like, this is not right. You know, we, pe- these people can't keep getting off for doing this. Right. Um, and there was a black man speaking and it was very visible in the video. You, you know, people see when they look at the link, the cops are trying to get to him. Yeah. They're trying to grab him. Uh, and he is surrounded by people who are not black, people who are white or Asian, right. surrounding him, putting their bodies on the line to protect him because they know that the cops won't reach for them in the same way. Yeah. And you look at the, the film, they don't. The cops are not reaching for the white woman that are protecting him the right. way they're reaching for him. Right. Right. It's a really powerful video. It's, and even without the, I don't think we had the audio. Wait, that's <laughs> that I was moment. just going to say. <laughs> the audio didn't work that day. And oh. even without, I think without the audio, it, it was even more impactful. Yeah, it allows you to even really focus on. Just, just to visually see yes. um, allyship in action. Yes. These people uh, protecting him were not fighting back. They were just standing their ground and just yeah, being an ally. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, that's an extreme example, yeah. of course, but like that's what it looks like. But I think for me, it was an important message because initially when when I saw your presentation just mm-hmm. in the beginning about allyship, sometimes we, we think we have to fight back that, mm-hmm. you know, it's just tit for tat. But mm-hmm. personally, I never believe violence is the answer. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so it's, you don't combat anger with anger. Yeah, for sure. Uh, not all the time, at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You got to have different approaches to, mm-hmm. to these problems. And I thought that was just such an impactful video. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, uh, absolutely, uh, subscribe to the idea of nonviolent action. I think it'd be very powerful yeah. in bringing people in. I would add the caveat that it is powerful when there's a camera on you, yeah. right? Nonviolent action doesn't do anything for you if there's no visibility, mm. right? So there are people in Kashmir right. who don't have the privilege of having nonviolent activism mm-hmm. with the governments that are attacking them, the Indian government that's attacking them, Modi's government that's attacking them. If there's no visibility to it, your nonviolent action is going to lead you to getting hurt. 
or worse. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't say that I'm a pacifist. Obviously, I yeah. get into a ring and beat up people yeah. <laughs> um, as a hobby, not even getting paid for it, just right. for fun. Right. But I absolutely recognize, I mean, it would be impossible to not recognize the power of nonviolent activism yeah. coming from the background that I come from. That's a very astute point. I mean, when I think of like Gandhi, who was promoting mm. nonviolence, yeah, I mean, he had huge visibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what made it effective. And you yeah, make absolutely. a really good point. Absolutely. So people need to be safe too, right? They need yeah. to protect themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Against uh, tyranny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, you know, that that's often something that can be frustrating for me, right? When we talk about social justice work, racial justice work, there's right. this idea that you have to be, I mean, it's respectability politics. You have to be unassailable, right? Mm-hmm. As a black person, as a person of color, as a URM when in doing this work, because you know that you're trying to get a white audience to be sympathetic, mm-hmm. right? And they're much more sympathetic. If you're looking at the, if you're looking at the sixties at lunch counters, you're much more sympathetic to a black person in a Sunday best getting ripped off of that counter than you are in somebody like in a tank top and shorts. Right. Cause just it, that's unfortunately how it works. Right. Yeah. There's this idea that respectability politics is really problematic for a lot of reasons, but it's also worked. Yeah. And it's in that, and that can be a tension. I know for in, in the black community for sure. And you even see it now with the, you know, with this immigration discussion, right? I don't think it's an accident that dreamers become the face of that, right? Yeah. Our understanding of what happens or what's what's going on right now is complicated by an understanding of history. Yeah. If you don't understand history, if you don't understand um, how these movements have operated, how they've worked, how they've worked or failed, and why we're in the position we're in right now, like you're not going to be able to move forward properly, right? If you start the clock, after Columbus reaches the shores of North America and he's just being attacked by these indigenous people, like, oh, wow, like, what, well, you know, poor guy, why, why are they trying to hurt him? You know, yeah. you start the clock a little bit early, you understand why, yeah. why they're in that situation in the first place. So, I mean, it happens a lot. The idea of where you start that clock, what kind of knowledge you're bringing and what kind of historical perspective you're bringing mm-hmm. is important and can make or break on the discussion, right? We wouldn't mm-hmm. be having the discussion we have about these Confederate monuments if people understood that the Civil War was about slavery. Yeah. That's a fact. You know what I mean? It's not yeah. like a, it's not like a, it was, an opinion, yeah. right? That's like the people who were doing it were saying like, it's because of slavery, yeah. right? Not states' rights. Right. But because of that misunderstanding of history, we have these people now who can say it's states' rights, uh, which changes the discussion a lot. Two last questions. One is, do you have any advice for prospective students mm. uh, looking at Haas currently? specifically towards, you know, URM students? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would say reach out. The URM students that are here try to make ourselves highly visible. We're on webinars. You, you can look, hit us up on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. We're very friendly. Reach out to us and ask us the questions that you need to ask, right? I think there's this idea that you're going to come, you're going to talk to URM and you're going to ask a question that's going to disqualify you somehow mm-hmm. or somehow you're not going to be able to get the real talk, right? right? The real conversation. I think we're really good at Haas about providing that when people ask for it and, and reach out. Come visit if you can. That was not something I could do. Mm-hmm. But if you can come visit, come visit, right? Because you'll see when you come on campus what kind of community we have. And you'll start to talk to people and you'll get a feel for what it's like to be here. Right. And that can be invaluable for people. Also, I think being at Haas, more than just like hearing about Haas peripherally, who you are as a person is really important, right? Bring your full self to campus. It's not just something that we say. It's something that we really kind of, uh, we buy into here, right? Mm-hmm. We're not looking for people that are just cookie cutter coming to be very professional and like have this very almost standoffish approach. Like we need people that are going to come here and bring their full selves. Yeah. And we, we want that. We want 
people who are going to come here and be quirky and like come from different perspectives and experiences and bring that to campus. That's what we want. Right. So don't tone yourself down. Like be your full self, whether it's talking to students, whether it's if you're going to apply and get into the interview, if you get that chance, be your full self, be authentic. Because I think that's the biggest thing that I hear on the back end, being perfectly involved in missions and all these other things, right? Like we want people who are really honest and who are, who are genuine. Right. I think that's something that we put a high priority on here. So. Right. And then, it's funny enough, my question was to follow up on that thought. Okay. <laughs> is what can current students at Haas do more mm-hmm. to be more inclusive? Absolutely. Um, I think that first and foremost, educate yourself, right? It's 2019. Right. Information is too accessible. There's no reason why you can't hop on a podcast and understand why we really care about police brutality. Right as a black and brown community or what the particular history of these struggles, you know, are in America, right? right. For, and particularly for international students who are coming here. But more than that, and something that we're really focusing on now is instead of saying, talking about diversity and inclusion from an American perspective, which is something that we did, mm-hmm. you know, there are pros and cons to either approach. What we're going to do this year, what we're focused on doing is talking about it in terms of systems of oppression, mm-hmm. right? It's a much better way, I think, to bringing people in that conversation, mm-hmm. right? Because if we talk about systems of oppression, you can think of wherever you come from. 40% of my class are international. So those students can think about wherever they come from right? and where in my country, who has privilege, who has power, and who doesn't. That's a very easy way to kind of get to those conversations mm-hmm. in a way that's not loaded with the with race and with America, you know, and, and our particular history around that. Yeah. So that's something we're working on for this week zero. And I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited for people to really get engaged in a different way. So yeah, the first thing is education, which you know I think is first and foremost. Educate yourself. It can be very problematic to come up to an underrepresented minority or any minority and say like, oh, like, tell me more about your experience. Dip into your pain and tell me, let me learn from that. Right. Right. That's something that can be useful, but you shouldn't be putting that on somebody. Right. Right. Ed- go educate yourself. Like you can, it's too easy to do. Yeah. The other thing I will say is that harkening back to my other point, if you have privilege in any way, whatever that is, right? Use it to help people that don't have privilege in that yes. field. Like it, it's as simple as that, yes. right? So if you are a white person at Haas, get involved with RII. Yeah. There's, get, take dialogues on a race. Like do something where you can get involved, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, if you are collectively get together and say, we want to get rid of racism, that doesn't happen if white people are involved as well, Yes, right? Women can get together and say like, we don't want any more sexism and misogyny. And men can ignore that. If they don't, if they don't get involved in that, yes. it's not going to happen. Right. So I think that's really, really important. And there's lots of ways to get involved on campus, right? Um, but I think that those would be my suggestions. And also, I would say it's just really easy to get involved in your own community. Try and get out there and meet somebody. Meet yeah. somebody who has a different perspective than you do. Discuss something that's going to be tense. You know what I mean? Right. Like have a tough conversation. Like that's how we're going to get closer to this community. That's how we're going to, that's how we're going to understand each other a little bit better. Yes. And there's no substitute for that. Right. So I th- think what those would be my things. I, and on top, I honestly think we should have a version of your presentation every single year hmm. because, because yeah. I've never heard of allyship before. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just do stuff every day trying to help people because you know, I feel like I come from privilege. For so sure. For sure. it's just like whatever I can do to help other people with without asking anything in return. Yeah. It just feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. But to, uh, I think for many other people, they they may not have this awareness. For sure. And don't get me wrong, right? It's, it, 
I think we can be too quick to villainize people or to um, disparage people. It's really, I can imagine how if you're coming from like a very white community and have worked around in corporate America, which is overwhelmingly white and male, right? right, And coming to Haas, like maybe you don't feel really well-equipped, even if you wanted to, you don't feel well-equipped to to engage in these conversations. Yes. Right, like that's entirely possible. I have a lot of empathy for that. There are lots of things that the women in my life teach me and tell me what their experience is being a woman that I'm often, you know, learning from. Same and, here. Right, yeah. Every day. <laughs> but it, it's important. It's it's really important, right? So yeah. I don't take that for granted and yeah. I don't take for granted having that experience and the fact that some people don't. Yeah. However, being on this campus, we are so diverse, right? People are coming from a lot of different backgrounds. Right. Um, even if we don't have the diversity in uh, underrepresented minorities that we maybe would want, yeah. they are still here. They are still involved. And I think if more people get involved in these efforts on campus, we don't have to have a situation where, and this is really something that happened, where I get together with like the other seven black students and we're like, okay, who's going to take BBSA? Who's going to take VP of DEI? Who's going to be an RII? Right? That's really something we had to do mm. to divvy up roles because we weren't sure if there was going to be somebody to take on these things. Mm. That's not something I want people to experience or this community to have to experience moving forward. Yeah. I think we're working towards that. But it would also be really great if some other people who maybe wouldn't necessarily have skin in the game, mm-hmm. put some skin in the game. Yeah. Right? Have that active allyship. Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Evan, for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in today. My aim is to bring the Haas community closer together through your stories. We're always looking for Haasies willing to share their stories and experiences so that we can give you more insights into the different programs, different careers, and ultimately different perspectives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please feel free to email me for suggestions on how I can improve this podcast, or if you have any recommendations on people or content you'd like to hear. My email is reachshawn at berkeley.edu. That's spelled R-E-A-C-H-S-E-A-N at berkeley.edu.